would you mind participating in a little thought experiment with me? Just to use your sanctified imagination and think about something. I want you to use all that you know about the Bible, all that you've learned in Sunday school, and all the Christian theology that's bouncing around in your head, and I want you to answer a question for yourself. You ready for it? What does it mean to follow Jesus? Certainly been thinking about that a lot this morning already, hadn't we? To follow him wherever he leads. But what does that really mean, to follow Christ? I mean, there's different ways you could think about it. You could say, well, to follow Jesus means to absorb his teaching and allow our lives to be conformed to it. You could say to follow him means to identify as a Christian. And so go to church and do the types of things Christians do. There's lots of ways you could answer it, and I'm sure all that stuff in your head, you've got your answer. But however you choose to, it's obvious that Jesus is looking for people who want to follow him. He's not interested in dazzling crowds with miracles and signs. He doesn't want his face plastered on a billboard. He's got more important things to do. He's establishing a kingdom. And he's calling men and women to follow him. To join him in his tasks. Those who do aren't devotees to a religion with some kind of special dress code and rituals and way of life. They're not members of an activist organization out to change the world. Instead, they're what the Bible calls over and over and over disciples, which basically means a learner or an apprentice. So does that line up with the way you answer the question, what does it mean to follow Christ? No, to follow him for real, you got to be a disciple. And in the passage John read for us, it's pretty clear that true disciples learn from Jesus and join him in his mission. That's what I want you to see this morning as we work our way through this passage. And we're kicking off a new series, 11 weeks, going to take us from this text in Mark 3 through the end of Mark chapter 6. And I like to think of it, if, if you could boil it down to its most basic, what's happening in these three chapters, I like to think of it as the disciples' training program, the school that Jesus put his disciples through to get them ready for the task that he'd called them for. He's going to send them out, but first they've got to learn some stuff. I think we're going to see this morning in three things. First, that this call to follow Christ and to enroll in his school means that you're going to have a new beginning founded on grace. You're going to experience an intimate new relationship, and you're going to receive a kingdom-focused mission. And so we're going to work through those bit by bit, but I've just kind of told you ahead of time in case I forget. The, the slides will keep us on track, I hope. And as you see, we're going to talk first about a gracious new beginning. But before we get there, I want to set the stage, because some of y'all weren't with us this fall when we hit Mark's Gospel, chapters 1, 2, and 3. We began by seeing Mark introduce this book. He says, this is the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And almost immediately, he roots Jesus' story into the promises and prophecies made in the Old Testament, especially through the prophet Isaiah. 
And of course, Jesus came to the Jordan where John the baptizer was there preparing the way for the Lord, and he was baptized. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. And almost immediately, the Spirit compelled Jesus into the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by Satan. And after he'd won the battle, he came preaching, Mark tells us in Mark 1, 14 and 15. He said, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And this short sermon that he preached everywhere he went was backed up with all kinds of signs that authenticated his message, that proved him to be somebody worth paying attention to. And in particular, the people noticed that everywhere Jesus went, he exerted authority. He taught as one having authority, not as the scribes. He spoke words and and touched people, and they were miraculously healed. He dramatically cast out demons. Of course, along along the way, all this miraculous, authoritative signs and wonders started to gain some attention. And with the attention came opponents. And so pretty much everywhere Jesus goes, there are these men, these religious people who are opposing him and recognizing that he's claiming an authority for himself that really only belongs to God. And so Mark tells us uh, in Mark 3 that they sought to destroy him. But then there were other people. Mark calls them the crowds who press in to Jesus every chance they get. They get as close as they can. They prevent him from preaching. They pile up outside the door to the house he's staying in, and everywhere he goes, they're there. And it's from this crowd of people that Jesus hand-selects the disciples we just read about. They stand for us as sort of the prime example of what it means to be a follower of Christ. These 12 men are the prototype for everything that Jesus wants to do in the world. And they show us that Christ's call to discipleship involves a gracious new beginning. That's what Mark says in verse 13, that Jesus went on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. Y'all ever summoned somebody before? I imagine the old fat cat in his bed with a bell waiting on a servant to come and get him his morning breakfast. You know, ding, 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 I'm summoning you. I've never, I, I have yet to attain the status where I'm allowed to summon anyone, not even my children or my own family. And yet here is Jesus summoning those he wanted. Mark's language tells us that this summoning is more of that authority, that he is sovereignly hand-selecting the men he wanted out of the crowd. I imagine the scene, dozens, maybe hundreds of people standing around and Jesus moseying through and coming to one, hey, you come with me, hey, you come with me. Hey, you come with me. Hey, you come with me. And up they follow to the mountaintop where he calls them apostles. Now, I wish I knew the criteria Jesus used because I would try to conform myself to that criteria. I want to be used by Jesus. I want to be the type of person that he points out in the crowd and says, hey, you come with me. Mark doesn't tell us the criteria. And based on what we know about these men and from the list that he gives us at the end of the passage John read for us, It's pretty obvious that whatever criteria it was, it was totally different than the criteria you or I would have used. 
Jesus apparently had no concern for people's family or educational background. He wasn't interested in people who were financially stable and able to support his ministry. That wasn't what it was. In fact, Robert Coleman says it'd be hard to imagine Jesus putting together a more ragtag group of men. None of them occupied prominent places in the synagogue, nor did any of them belong to the Levitical priesthood. They were common, laboring men. In fact, the only one of the twelve who wasn't a Galilean and came from Judea was the guy who ended up betraying him. Judas from Kiriath. Judas Iscariot. And so Jesus selected these men, twelve hand-selected men, going to be his closest companions, his friends, his ministry partners. And he did it not because of their past or who they were, but precisely because he had something new he wanted to do in them. This morning, I want you to know that's the way God's call always works. God always acts graciously to do something new in people. Think about Abram, Genesis chapter 12. Someone in the Old Testament doesn't have any problem reminding his descendants that he was an idol worshiper in Ur of the Chaldees when God called him. He said, Abram, go to the place I'm going to show you, and I'm going to bless you. And Abram acted on that, and when he got to the place God showed him, the land of Canaan, God did something new and even and changed his name. And Abram's grandson, Jacob, certainly wasn't chosen by God because he was put together, righteous, had all the right stuff. I mean, his name means the deceiver. And I've been reading his story in my quiet time. He's a scoundrel. He's a bad guy. But God had to work in him to show him that he was going to do something totally new in his life. He was going to prove himself to be God Almighty, and he was going to bless him, not because of who he was, but because what God wanted to do through him. And so he changed his name, too, from Jacob to Israel. And one day, Israel's descendants gathered before this God at Mount Sinai, and even though they weren't invited on top of the mountain, uh, Moses was. And when he got up there, God showed himself to him, defined himself, revealed his name. He said, I am the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. God makes new beginnings as an overflow of His grace. That's who He is. That's what He does. Not because of anything in people. Moses is eventually going to tell the people as they wait to go into the promised land in Deuteronomy chapter 7, don't get any ideas. God didn't choose you because you were the greatest nation on earth. He chose you even though you were the weakest to fulfill His purpose in you. God calls people not on who they are or what they've done, but by His grace. He gives them new beginnings. And so when Jesus went up on the mountain and sovereignly called those twelve disciples, He was about to accomplish something totally new in them. Some of them even got new names out of it. Simon gets the nickname Peter. James and John, sons of thunder. But whatever... For Thaddeus and Matthias and James, the son of Alphaeus, all of them got to experience something totally new. They all had pasts, I'm sure, dotted with failures like you and me. 
times in their life where they can point out their own unfaithfulness when they messed up and wish they could go back and get a redo. But none of that mattered to Jesus. He wasn't walking through the crowds looking for perfect people. He was looking for men who were available. And by His grace, He was about to accomplish something totally new in them. Number 12 is not insignificant, is it? There are 12 tribes of Israel, and I think what Jesus is doing is He's reconstituting and restoring the people of God. In fact, He's creating a nucleus around which the church was going to gather in these 12 men. That's something new that He was doing. And so when you think about following Jesus, I hope you see first and foremost that it always is a gracious new beginning. It's not an add-on to a life that's already mostly put together. It's something totally new. I think that's probably one of the biggest barriers for us when it comes to thinking about what Jesus wants to accomplish in us. See, Christ's school is different than the schools you and I have attended. You know, our, our schools are built on a certain philosophy that most people's problem is that they suffer from a lack of information. And if they get the education they need, they can break free from whatever cycle of destructive behavior or poverty or whatever is there. Right? Knowledge is power. So we're going to instruct people up and out. And so we come to Christ school looking for the lessons, the tricks that are going to finally help us become the people we want to be, have the life we want to live. But Jesus says, no amount of education can fix your problem. You need something totally new. So don't get to thinking that discipleship is an elective that you can add on to the core curriculum of life. The call to follow Jesus is a call to experience a gracious new beginning. It means leaving everything else behind to come to Him. That's what it means to follow Christ. And those who hear this call and respond to it always experience a new beginning. Their sins are forgiven. Their record of debt is wiped clean. They stand before God declared righteous and justified because of Jesus' perfect life. They're adopted into God's family and receive from Him a new name. His Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. This is the new beginning that marks everyone's call to discipleship. And when you experience it, it ushers you into an intimate new relationship. Right? That's what Mark tells us next in verse 14. That when Jesus hand-selected these 12 guys, he had a purpose. Actually, a two-fold purpose. And the first purpose, we read, was that they would be with him. You see that? He appointed 12 that they would be with him. This is the intimate new relationship created by Christ's call to discipleship. He wants these guys to be with him. Now, I think there are two ways that you and I might go wrong in understanding this. And I think maybe it's because in our own life, we sort of suffer from the things that would explain it. And here, let me, let me just tell you what I think it is. First, we could think that Jesus chose these 12 men because he was lonely and needed a friend. You know, if you're a guy like that and always getting pressed in from the crowds and always seeking to pray in a secluded place, maybe you would get lonely. Maybe you would feel like, you know what I could use right now? A friend. 
And so you go out to the crowd of people and you say, hey, I can see myself hanging out with you. We share the same hobbies and interests. We come from the same place. Let's do this. You, you and me, we're going to be buddies. The disciples clearly were not a solution to the problem of Jesus' loneliness. He didn't call these 12 men to satisfy some kind of desire for friendship. Scriptures tell us over and over and over that Jesus was perfectly satisfied and content with one relationship alone. And that was a relationship with his heavenly Father. He was the sole focus of his life. So it wasn't because Jesus desired friends. It's because he wants to bring these guys into deeper fellowship. He wants them to get a different look at who he is. But on the other hand, I think you go wrong by thinking that having called these 12 men, what Jesus was really creating was some kind of VIP inner circle. You know, like, hey, us 12 versus the world, guys. Come on, let's do this. But what Jesus was doing was not creating uh, a clique that the crowds had to look on from the outside. Oh, man, I wish Jesus would let me in there. It's not like the celebrity entourage that's going to follow him everywhere he goes to make him look cool. No, the disciples were brought into Jesus' inner circle so they could get a clearer picture of who he was and of what he was doing. There were some things that they could only get by having the daily close contact, by being in an intimate relationship with him. And in this way, Jesus' method for training them differs not just from our educational model, but even the educational model of the first century. The rabbis never selected their own disciples. Instead, you'd have your favorite teacher. You might think of the, the uh, rabbi in the New Testament, Gamaliel. There's another one. They were kind of arch nemesis, Shammai. And these disciples would come to rabbis like that because they preferred their interpretive method and approach to God's law. And so they wanted to be near the rabbis to learn from them so they could gain the tools and techniques to interpret the scriptures the way the rabbis did. And so I guess every year they would get that catalog with all the nation's top rabbi schools, and they would go through them and think like, hey, which one am I going to apply to, and do they offer scholarships because I need one? You know, all that kind of stuff. But whatever, they went to the guy they liked. You see, Jesus' method's different. He's not trying to convey some kind of core curriculum, make sure they get all their credits lined up right so they get the certificate at the end. In fact, Jesus himself is the curriculum. And because of that, the only way they could learn what they need to learn was by being in close contact with him. Robert Coleman wrote this book, The Master Plan of Evangelism. If you've never read it, you should read it today. You should go online and get the PDF or the ebook, and you should read it. I was thinking a lot about it this week because the master plan of evangelism basically examines the way Jesus discipled his men. And he says this. He says, Knowledge for the disciples was gained by association before it was understood by explanation. I think you can say it like this. Learning in Christ school is caught, not taught. And what the disciples had to do is be behind Jesus every day so they could observe his way of life. They needed to see the way he interacted with people. They needed to see his miracles because tied up in what he did was who he was. So they needed to observe it with their eyes. And they needed to absorb it 
so that it reshaped their own thinking about the world and the way they interpreted the scriptures because, hey, not some interpretive method like a three-point structure for making sure you understand every passage. What the disciples did is they read their Bible with Jesus as the lens. Every text refracted through who he was and what they had seen. And so they had to be close with him everywhere he went, observing and absorbing, trying to get conformed, not to some curriculum, but to his very person. I think we got to remember this too, that becoming a disciple is not about 99 core doctrines. It's not about the trivia quiz, knowing all the Bible stories. Being a disciple of Jesus, following Christ, means being conformed into his image. Living the type of life he did. But of course, we always boil discipleship down into responsibilities, duties. We even call them disciplines. True disciples practice the spiritual disciplines. And that's right. You know, and I hope you read your Bible, and I hope you pray, and I hope you're giving yourself to the 99 core doctrines, and I hope you're reading with us this year through Introducing Christian Doctrine by Millard Erickson. It's going to be great. It's going to help you to become even more closely related to Christ. But don't go thinking that that's all discipleship is, is doing. Because discipleship is about being with Jesus. We do a great disservice to ourselves when we try to accomplish things for Christ without spending time with him. You're like the woman who heard that Jesus was coming to her house. And so she frantically got everything ready for the teacher's arrival. And when he got there, she had her meals timed out just perfectly so everything hit the table at once. And she was so absorbed in the teaching that she looked around trying to find her help, her sister, and whenever she was nowhere to be found. So finally she goes and tracks her down, and there she is, sitting and not helping. And so the lady says to Jesus, Hey, teacher, come on. Why don't you tell my sister to get up and help? We're trying to serve you here. Jesus looks at her in Luke 10 and says, My dear Martha, you're worried and upset over all these details. There's only one thing worth being concerned about. And Mary's discovered it. And it's not going to be taken away from her. One thing mattered in that moment. Not the serving the sitting, not the doing, but the being with Christ. And listen, the impact you make in the world, whether that's here in your various areas of ministry, as a deacon or a teacher or as a helper in Jesus Kids, the impact you make in the world, at work, and the conversations you have with your coworkers about Christ, the impact you make at home, discipling children and loving your spouse well, your impact is directly related to the quality and quantity of time you spend with Christ. Yo, y'all, did y'all hear that? Do you believe that? You can't make an impact for Christ if you don't know Him, if you're not with Him. And so I wonder, are you going through the motions without being with the Master.
Or are you living your life of discipleship as an overflow of a growing and intimate relationship with Christ? Man, we get stuck, don't we? The rut and the routine zap the joy and life out of our relationship with Christ. But before he ever told his 12 men, all right, y'all, now go and do the work, he called them so they would be with him. So be with him. And when you are, you'll be ready for this kingdom-focused new mission. The mission flows out of the relationship. While Jesus' first priority for the twelve was that they would be with him, Mark also tells us that he had a second purpose. That he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. That's the second purpose. That's the mission. Jesus brought them into his inner circle so he could send them out on a mission in the world. And this sending is essential to their identity. And it explains the name Apostle, which might be in your Bible. It's not in my Bible. It was in the Bible John read. Some of the earliest Greek manuscripts don't include the phrase, and he named them apostles. And so if, like me, you felt a little cheated because John read something that you're like, wait, that's not there, uh, that's why. But even if the phrase, he named them apostles, isn't present in your Bible, the idea is. The word apostle is a transliteration of a Greek word, apostolos. And it's directly related to the verb in verse 14, translated send out, apostello. The disciples were sent by Jesus, and so they were apostles. That's what it means. And just another word nerd thing, the Latin verb for send is missio, from which we get our word mission. And so Jesus called the disciples and trained them up so he could send them out on a mission in the world. And the mission was to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. This mission was the whole purpose of their call. It's the task that all their training is going to prepare them for. And you think about what you know of church history and the New Testament. I mean, had these disciples not observed Jesus' way of life, and had they have not absorbed his teaching, could they have gone out into the, all the world, like he says in Matthew 28, with his authority to make disciples of all nations and to teach them everything Jesus has commanded? They wouldn't have been able to do that. So their training prepares them for their task. Because of that, their mission was simply an extension of Jesus' own mission. He lived his life with a sense of purpose. He said in John 6, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And after his resurrection, he told the same disciples in John 20, as the Father sent me, so also I'm sending you. And so the disciples' mission was an extension and a continuation of what Jesus had begun. They're called to preach, to proclaim the good news of the kingdom, the times fulfilled, that salvation was available to all who trusted in Christ. They're called to exercise his authority over the unclean spirits and to push back on the kingdom of darkness as God brought his kingdom on earth as in heaven. This kingdom-focused mission was the all-encompassing pursuit of their life, and the church tells us that most of them gave their life fulfilling it. 
Most, can you think, of, think about that? That's crazy, isn't it? Twelve men, almost all of whom died fulfilling the mission that their teacher had given them. What if Jesus had called you? I want you, and I want you, come with me. He sits you down. He says, all right, guys, I've got a mission for you. I want you to listen carefully to everything I say. I want you to watch carefully at everything I do because I'm going to send you out to follow in my footsteps and to do even greater works than these. But here's the catch. All of you are going to die doing it. That's a powerful thought. And yet one that shouldn't be too foreign to you because Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Every last one of us is called to the same thing. To give our whole selves to Christ as his disciple, his friend and companion, and as one who continues the mission that he began. Whether you realize it or not, you are a disciple. All of you are disciples. The question is, whose disciple are you? I think the best way to figure that out is to answer the other question. Whose mission am I trying to fulfill? Maybe you're a disciple of one of the world's great leaders. There's certainly a lot of them. I saw Elon Musk has a computer chip they're going to implant in people's brain and could heal them of quadriplegia. That's amazing. A lot of them have compelling visions for the future, what kind of world we could live in, and people line up to follow them. Maybe you're following one of these world leaders. But I think many people have bought into the philosophy of the ancient philosophers who taught their disciples to eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Now, none of us are so bold as to actually live by that philosophy. We just sort of take it and, and sort of, like Plato, shape it into something that seems a little more respectable. There are feminine and masculine versions. The feminine, the feminine version, I think, comes to us from Oprah, maybe, through a feel-good kind of lens. Eat, pray, and love, whatever that means for you. Then there's the man version. Live fast. Die hard. You know, that's us. In fact, research came out in 2015 by the Barna Group. It says that 84% of adults in the U.S. and 66% of practicing Christians agree that the highest goal for life is to enjoy it as much as possible. Sixty-six are professing Christians. Zero percent of true disciples. True disciples say, no, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. They don't have it emblazoned on their walls, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. C.T. Studd's famous phrase, only one life to live will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. They say with Paul, 
Whatever gain I had, I counted loss for the sake of knowing Christ. I've been crucified with Christ, and it's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live, I don't live so I can maximize my pleasure for the next 50 years. I live it by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. You can determine whose disciple you are by defining your purpose. What gets you out of bed every morning? And if it's any other answer but Christ, it's wrong. That's what it means to be a true disciple. Because at the end of the day, following Christ doesn't mean being a self-professing Christian or a faithful church attender. It means learning from Christ and joining Him in His mission. So think about your answer again. What do you think it means to follow Christ? Are you following Him? Well, I think there's something here for everybody. So let me give you a three-point test. You're in one of these categories. Have you experienced a gracious new beginning in your life? You can point to the time or the season when you went from being who you were to being who you are in Christ. A gracious new beginning. A new identity. That if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you've never experienced that, well, your step today is to surrender to Christ's call to discipleship and allow Him to do something in you so radical that the Bible calls it a new birth. That you'd be buried with Him so that you could be raised to walk in newness of life. That's your first step. You want to follow Christ? Surrender to His call and experience this gracious new beginning. Or maybe you've experienced that. You can point to the time and the season when you went from being who you were to being who you are. But you've sort of drifted from the Lord. And you're not living in the fullness or the intimacy, the closeness of a relationship. He's a stranger to you. He's abstract concepts. A crucified Christ but not the person you speak to about your problems, not the one you cast your cares on because he cares for you, not the shepherd who leads you by still waters. Pursue a relationship with Christ. And maybe you're there. The sweetness of your fellowship with Christ is better than it's ever been. But are you living out your kingdom-focused mission? Are you letting the relationship drive your responsibilities? Are you letting the impact He wants you to make be made? And I think that's where most of us might be. Are we living on mission with Christ? Church, could you imagine what God could do with us Jesus called 12 men. Painful backstories. Terrible mistakes. But he said, I'm doing something new in you. 
I want you to come be with me, and I want you to observe the way I live and absorb my teaching, and I'm going to send you out to change the world. What if he did that for us? What if he came to us as a church and said, Sister Baptist Church, if you will renew your commitment to me, to be with me, I'll put you through a training program that will prepare you to change the world. What if we forsook everything, every other mission, every other aim and goal, except for His? What if we offered ourselves to Him wholehearted and surrendered, saying, even if it costs me my life, Wherever he leads, I'll go. Will you pray with me?